Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Nikita Faustin, and thank you so much for tuning in to season two of Pivotal Moment. Thank you so much for a successful season one. We got so much support, so much love, so many downloads. So thank you for your prayers, your well wishes, your following, your sharing. It is good to be back. I missed the show. I missed our listeners. Thank you for making our first season the bomb. So we are now, just to let you know, on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify, Google Play Music, iTunes, and Podbean. So please keep following and supporting. And as you know, on the show, it's called Pivotal Moment. And we talk to people in news, sports, and entertainment about the moment that changed it all, right? It's that moment that we all have. And some folks are still seeking the moment that takes them from where they are to where they want it to be. And so we talk to people in these different areas to find out how they did it. Next week, we're going to talk to Felicia Mary. She's the creator and co-executive producer of BET Plus's new hit series, Bigger. Now, I could say a lot about this show, but I do not want to give it all away. All I'm going to say is it's not a bad idea to have two great choices. (laughs) Felicia will tell us about her pivotal moment, her move to Hollywood, and what it's like to work alongside super producer Will Packer. So tune in next week for Felicia Mary and all things bigger. But today... Today, we have got another superstar sister, the amazing and incredible Marlon Ezrika. She is a celebrated author, award-winning journalist, and sought-after speaker and storyteller. You do not want to miss her pivotal moment coming up next. Thank you and welcome to season two. Let's get started. Maudlin is a Chicago Sun-Times columnist and staff reporter covering urban affairs for the Chicago Sun-Times. She's the author of Escape from Nigeria, a memoir of faith, love, and war. She pins Chicago Chronicles, which is a long-form narrative piece that the Sun-Times covers that Maudlin writes covering stories, people, and places that make Chicago tick. With a special focus on brown and black people, which I love. There's a few stories on there right now that are awesome that have been featured across Chicago um, and across broadcast networks uh, in support of the written content. Uh, Marla has more than 30 years of experience in public relations, journalism, and government. She's the winner of the Studs Terkel Award. She is the president of the Chicago Journalists Association, as well as the National Association of Black Journalists, two presidencies, yes. And she has also been on CNN, Fox, ABC, CBS, NPR, and she's a frequent contributor on WTTW's Chicago Tonight, Weekend Review, and Fox 32's Good Day Chicago. Sometimes I hear those. Who are you talking about? going to tell us the secret today. So, and she's with us on Pivotal Moment. And let me just say, I love Marlon because she's real, she's brilliant, she's smart. I call her the lyrical gangster. <laughs> I so, told her I'm going to steal that. Because <laughs> everyone, some people I should say are able to write. They're really good writers. But not everyone is so poetic. 
um, is so profound with their words and their gift and the way that she is. And she also has a really good soul. So I'm really glad that she's on the show. I'm really glad that she's going to share with us some of uh, what makes her who she has become. So I'm so glad to be here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Marlon looks out for people. Um, she is a very genuine and authentic person. It comes through in what she writes and what she says and how she carries herself. So she's my mentor. I don't know where you're going to get one. That's right. <laughs> but hands off. No, 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 no. She's good people um, and a good person to know. And so I want to ask, we were talking about writing before we started the show, and I wanted to ask from you because it's such a gift that you have, that you've shared, that you've grown and um, shared with so many people and so many outlets. When did you know you wanted to write? I've known I wanted to write since I was six years old. And what happened was my dad used to take all of the kids to the library on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. He'd throw us all into the station wagon, and we would have to go to the library and spend two hours there reading and then check out a couple of books and then read them and give them a book report by the following <laughs> weekend. I love it. Oh, my gosh. And I hated it. <laughs> so when it's beautiful outside and all your friends are out playing kick the can, yeah. you don't want to go to the library. And we would grumble and grumble. But what happened is after about two years of that, we would jump up on Saturday morning, bang on his door and say, Dad, what's the hold up? What is going on? What is really going on? Why are we not at the library? So that's what happens when you raise up your child in the wow. way in which you want them to Amen. grow. Amen. And that's what happened. And so he noticed that I loved reading. And he said to me, because I was the kid who, after the lights were turned off, he would wait two minutes, stand at my door, watch his clock, and then open the door without even looking in and say, Maudlin, turn off the flashlight. <laughs> because I was under my sheet trying to get the last bit in yeah, with the yeah. flashlight. And he said to me at age six, one day you're going to write something. You're going to write stuff that other people want to read. And that was it. He spoke that thing he into his own kids. Did yes. he not? Yes, he did. And, and speaking of writing, that led you to Northwestern. For where you are an alum, yes. fellow alum, shout out to that's right. So, tell us about how that training, on top of already having that gift, that innate gift from God, but how Northwestern helped to kind of further that trajectory of where you went. Sure. So, I went to the University of Iowa yes. for their creative right. writing workshop mm -hmm. for undergrad, and then I went to Medill because it was simply the best journalism school in the country. And Did I you hear that from? Okay, I'm sorry about that. Sorry about that. But anyway, um, yeah, so I was determined that I needed to have Medill on my resume. And so after graduating with my um, master's in journalism there, I was helped to get my first job because I did an internship at the Chicago Sun-Times while I was working on my master's at Medill. Okay. And of course, you know, I had to give letters of reference to my professors, etc., so it was because of that internship that when I graduated, I came banging on the door of the Sun Times oh. saying, hey, give me a job, please. Remember me. Remember me. <laughs> I was just here. I was blessed that they hired me. So Medill wow. is responsible for my career. The Medill Mafia. They don't stop. You got it. You got to have the mafia. If you don't have Behind the mafia, you, you're, I don't know. <laughs> So let's talk about, since we're at the same time, let's talk about your column okay. and the Chicago Chronicles and how that came about. Sure. I've been at the Sun-Times for over 25 years. It hasn't been a 
chronologically. So I did 11 years at the Sun-Times right after graduating from Medill, okay. um, from 87 to 97. Okay. And then in 97, I left the Sun-Times to go work for Governor Edgar as press secretary of his Illinois Department of Children and Family Services. And that after about four or five years of doing that, no, I did that for two years. When he didn't run again, I hung my own shingles and launched the Hedgerica Media and Communications Group. And I managed the media operations of politicians, both at the city council, state legislature, and congressional level. And after that, for about three more years of that, I missed writing. Writing yeah. is my passion. Yeah. And I just... You were out there like, I could come out every woman. You know, I, you know. You got in the anger you're doing your own. I said, I just cannot be, I, I cannot write for other people. I got to write for myself, which is the difference between public relations and journalism. Yes. So I came to the Sun-Times and started banging on the door yet again, yes. second time around, <laughs> and begged for my old job back. And um, once again, you know, some people say luck, I say blessed. I was blessed uh, to be hired back. So I've been at the Sun-Times for an additional 13 years since. And what happened was, right, I've covered every beat from education to crime to inner city issues, urban affairs, of course, um, politics. Um, what else? Nonprofit, the nonprofit sector, you name it, I've covered it. And so I came back in 2003 and I started moving through all of those beats again. Okay. And it was in October 2007, 2016 that uh, my boss, Jim Kirk, who is now publisher of Crane Chicago Business, um, promoted me to uh, columnist to launch a new column called Chicago Chronicles. And, it's and I love the name of it. Oh, isn't you it know wonderful? What I mean? That's really good. It's well, a lyrical gangster would come ah! up with. I mean, obviously, we're talking about that if you're a lyrical gangster, obviously. What else would you come up with? You know, it's a great um, name, and it really um, adequately captures what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, it does. So there, there are profiles of people, places, and issues in our black and brown communities of Chicago that are told, or rather that address issues through a featureized manner. And so therefore, I can tell you about education or about politics or about crime or violence through the eyes of an individual or an organization that's perhaps working to address the issue, or a place, maybe, in one of our neighborhoods that you may not be familiar with. Yeah. So just really love it because it's that one little bit of positivity. That you need. Yeah. Because I, I read or I saw that you were quoted as saying you always look to put a face yes. to the issue. Absolutely. And so that's what you did even in the most, or one of the most recent stories that you have about Antonio Davis. Oh, yeah. You're talking about disability. You're talking about mm-hmm. partnership with marriage yeah. and all these Tragedy beyond triumph. Overcoming. Exactly. Right. right. And you put that wonderful face, and it's a great story, and he's like paying for Obama. Thank right? you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm all going to pin this wonderful story, if you haven't read it yet, about Antonio Davis, who's this wonderful painter mm-hmm. who's a quadriplegic. His wife is a mouth painter. Yes. Mouth painter. And you found that story and you wrote mm-hmm. it so wonderfully. I the lyrical gangster struck again. Oh, I think um, it's that. beautiful, though. It's a beautiful story. I was wonderful by his yeah. story. And it's those are the stories that I know will resonate with others. If they resonate with me, yeah. you know, if I'm moved, then I yeah. know others will be moved. Yeah. How do you find those stories? Do they come to you? Do you look for them? How do people even submit if they have an idea? Sure. I get my stories through many different means. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when I come in in the morning, I have about 100 new <laughs> emails. 
pitches from PR firms or individuals or organizations looking for coverage on a story. So there's those that I weed through every day. And then, of course, there's public relations people who call me on the phone and pitch stories. And then there are my friends in the business. I know a lot of people through uh, the many, you know, um, organizations that I'm involved in. And so um, people will reach out to me and say, hey, Marlon, I got a good one. I think you're white. So it's all, all, all through, through every means. And, and you have been in the business. What is it about what you see or read or read when it's pitched that lets you know, hey, this is a good story, this is going to resonate, I'm going to cover it? What is it right. that you look for? What's the criteria? What I always tell people is if you're pitching me a story, know what I cover. Because, you know, yes. some publicists make the mistake of just casting a net wide. Yeah. And I'll get, a, I'll get an email about covering... I don't know, you know, covering a, a new park opening. Yeah, yeah. That's not what I cover, yeah, right? Yeah. And so basically, you know, you got to know that I cover urban affairs mm-hmm. and you got to know that I'm looking for black and brown communities. Yes. So your story should be in those communities and your story should touch on an element of urban affairs. Okay. And that is all the things that affect and plague um, black and brown communities. Yes. Those are disinvestment, economic yes. development, lack of economic development. Yes. Poverty, single-parent households, crime, violence, gangs, and guns. And then the flip side that people don't hear about enough, that is two-parent households who are struggling to to raise their kids and all of that mayhem. That is the single-parent mother who's working three jobs to provide for her child and keep him on the straight straight arrow. Right? Say that. Say that. Um, And so uh, all those positive stories in those communities as well. Yeah. Well, you are doing a fantastic job of sharing them, and we need more of them. I want to switch gears and ask you about not only the writing um, that you do feature style, but the same time and finding these great stories, but about your book. So she's an author. She's taking time off from her tour to talk with us. (laughs) I want to thank her for that as well. But the book is called Escape from Nigeria, A Memoir of Faith, Love, and War. Yes. Um, And it really is your mother's story in large part. And um, some of what you talked about that I have read, Talks about when your mom came to Chicago mm-hmm. to O'Hare Airport in right. 1969 mm-hmm. with you and four siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell us what happened after that because there are five couples, mm-hmm. unlikely allies, yeah. that helped you get here and then you helped your family reunite with your dad. Yes. Who was at Northwestern? That's right. Shout out again to Northwestern. Full cycle. Full cycle. Right, right, You right. can do that You have the, the lightest expression. Gosh, thanks. So. Yes. so, yeah, my mother's uh, story is told in this memoir that um, I published in 2016. Yes. And it's a story I grew up with and have been wanting to write since I was a child. When the Nigerian Biafran War broke out, which pitted the rest of Nigeria against um, the Igbo nation, the Igbo tribe, that wanted to secede and start their own country of Biafra, war broke out. And so the Nigerian Biafran War took place from July 1967 to 1970, January 1970. And when the war broke out, my dad was studying at Northwestern University. So he was at the Kellogg School of Management, working on a degree in finance. And for two and a half years, because no one could get in, no one could get out, neither my mom nor my dad knew if the other were alive or dead. But the thing about it is this is also a love story because the two believed in each other. And even as the footage of 
women and children dying, uh, ravaged by a condition called kwashoka. And that's when the body, the stomach turns on itself when there is no food and begins to eat itself until you're no more than skin and bones and distended belly. And when that footage was beamed into living rooms across the world, you know, many people just assumed mm. that anyone they knew in Biafra was dead by now. Yeah. But your dad didn't give up. My dad refused <laughs> to believe it. He held on to hope. And so, you know, his grades started to go down, and one of his professors, who was a dean at Kellogg, and his mentor said to him, what's going on with your grades? And he told him, you know, the situation. Okay. And the dean told him, you know, we've seen the footage. Two million Igbos died of starvation and massacre in the Biafran War. Surely you are not holding on to hope. And my father said, you don't know my wife. So he and these four other couples would invite him to Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas, and they all would try to cheer him up and get him to let go and just accept that his family was likely dead. But for her part, my mom in Biafra was holding on and just believing that her husband was going to find her and the children. And so one day, she was working with the missionary nuns, Mm -hmm. helping to feed the starving population, and the nun asked her, what's wrong? You know, you look, you've gone down. And she told her the situation. So the nun helped her to smuggle a letter out of Biafra into two European countries, back into the continent of Africa to neighboring Sierra Leone, where my father was supposed to be studying at a university when the war broke out. But when he couldn't return home, he had accepted a scholarship to study in the States. When the letter arrived at Sierra Leone, it could have just gone into the garbage can. Of course. But this is also a story of faith because God has always been in the details and when this letter arrived someone who happened to remember that my father had gone on to America found a way to forward that letter on to America continuing its journey halfway around the world until it arrived at Northwestern that is a love story love cannot be denied it can't be denied you know and it's wow. only because those wow. two believed in each other. And they were both believing on, on opposite sides of the world. And so, of course, when that letter arrived, the five couples were so blown away. Of course. That yes. they then joined in the most Herculean feat to first locate my family in the midst of a raging war and effect our escape from Nigeria to the U.S., where we landed on June 9, 1969. And so you were a refugee. I am a refugee. I am an immigrant. I wear those mantles proudly. And thus I know that as this anti-immigrant, anti-refugee discourse takes hold in American debate and across the world, it's a very personal one for me. How do you, because that has to resonate for you some yes. people you and, and your family. Yes. And you see that and you yes. see what's happening with ICE and at these entertainment yes. centers and yes. these children who are not as fortunate as, you know, your family has been. 
What you know, some mm-hmm. some days when I read those stories, especially the early stories last yeah. year about children being held in warehouses in the, in the worst conditions, mm-hmm. and parents who had been separated from their children, and then when the um, courts finally ordered the administration to reunite these families, yeah. it turned out so many but parents had already them. been deported, yeah. Yeah. and the children were here, and the ch- and the parents were there, and they had no good records. Yeah to help unify these families, all I could do was cry, Nikita, because all I could think is, if that had been me, but for the grace of God, God, would you say that again? But for the grace of God, there go I. Yes, ma'am, there go I. What if they had separated my mother from her five children when we had arrived at O'Hare? What if we had been placed in warehouses without adequate care? What if my mother had eventually been deported and we still here in the U.S.? What if there had been no records to help them trace where we were and where our parents were to be able to bring us back together? What if? What if? So, yeah, it touches me deeply. And it resonates not only in the woman you've become, but the writing you do. And you talked about being a composite of all your experiences and that you can't be unbiased because we are who we are. We're a collection of our decisions and our feelings and our emotions and our experiences. So how do you manage to write objectively? I know in your column you can say, and she does, (laughs) but when you're writing, let's say, in an objective format of yes. course, you know, a different kind of yes. of audience. How do you maintain that objectivity so that you can present both sides of one story, even if you strongly align with one part of it? Well, How do you do it? first of all, let me say, you know, it's clear that you have <laughs> my, you, you studied me because it, and it's yes. so refreshing to hear someone, you know, actually re, re, reflect back at you um, some of your deepest held beliefs that you've espoused over time. Yeah. And so thank you for that, first Absolutely. of all. You got to be ready to get a because her bio is seven pages. Oh my God. You got to do your research. Well, you really hit on one of those things that I have, you know, said many, many times um, to many, many people. And that is absolutely that that I can't be biased. I can't be unbiased um, in my feelings about the refugee issue. Right now, we as a globe are facing the single largest number of displaced people globally since World War II. More than 68 million people are homeless, um, cannot return to their homes because of war, natural disaster. And so it is, we are at a place on our planet where everyone has to do something. Every nation must join to do their part. Otherwise, where are these people supposed to go? And so when I write about those issues, how can I be unbiased? When I write about those issues, you need only look at my bio and look at my history and know where I'm coming from. And, and or read my book mm-hmm. to know where yeah. I'm coming yeah, from. Where That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. So when I write my columns, thank God, as you say, you can speak your mind, mm-hmm. you can share your perspective. But when I do write news stories, yes, as a journalist, I must be objective, and I do still write um, news stories outside of my column. And when I'm writing on those particular issues, covering events, covering those issues, I'm still writing as an objective journalist. But anyone who reads my book or peels back my history knows whatever I'm writing 
This yeah. is who I am. Amen. And so I might be telling you both sides of the yeah. issue, but you know who yeah. I am. You know who's behind You know who's behind the I am a refugee yeah. and an immigrant. Yeah. So I will always be objective, but you have to know that when the rubber hits the road, yeah. when it comes to those issues that I have lived as a child of war, I'm going to tell you how I feel in a column. And they can't be denied. And I mean, can't be denied. You are. And that's what you just said exactly. Um, the other thing that I've always espoused, that is, as journalists, we, yes, practice objectivity. But I tell students that in this business, in J school, you will be told that you have to be objective. Mm-hmm. But do know that none of us are completely objective because we are a complete package of everything we've been through, where we've come from, how we grew up, our own struggles, and all of that will impact our writing. Even if only in our choice of the stories we want to tell. Or read. Or read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like that you said, like, you have a point of view and that everyone's point of view deserves to be shared. Yes. Do you think that journalism today is doing a good job of bringing the voices that need to be heard forth? Or do you think that there's still, like, places where voices are missing. Are we doing a good job of that? I think that, you know, we have a long way to go to ensure that all voices are being heard and that the diversity diversity of voices are being brought to the table. You know, and I will say to you that um, it's always been an issue in journalism, the lack of diversity Mm -hmm. and the lack of diverse voices. But it has been... Even it has become even more severe because of the downsizing and constriction of our industry. And so as the industry downsizes, there are fewer of us left to tell the stories. And so there are fewer diverse voices left to tell the stories. And so the short answer is no, I don't think that the diversity of voices has reached a satisfactory level. Um, I still think that there is a fight left to be fought by organizations such as the National Association of Black Journalists. Because if I'm not in that newsroom, if you're not in that newsroom, if my Latino brothers and sisters are not in that newsroom, who's going to tell the stories that we, only we, know so well because we have lived it. Say that. Because we have lived it. ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっ
What I want people to know is that I arrived in the United States on June 9, 1969 with the clothes on my back. I was a child of war who had seen who had seen things that no child should ever have to see. And so from that my parents worked three jobs apiece at times to raise seven children and to follow the American dream. And they worked very hard. I didn't have a lot as a child, but I never knew I was lacking. And when my dad passed, um when I was a senior in high school, my dad died of a stroke. I would say that was my pivotal moment because my mother was left with seven children and we were living in the southwest suburbs in Downers Grove and I I've rarely spoken of this but my mother in trying to figure out she had five of us she had me and my sister who were both heading to college in the same year because I'd skipped a grade my other three older siblings were already in college she was looking at five children in college and her oh. husband had just passed and she had no idea how she was going to provide. So what my mother did was she sold our home and she put the money from the sale of the home into a trust and she gave the authority over the trust to her best friend and she packed up the two youngest children and she moved back to Nigeria. Wow. My mother made the ultimate sacrifice to put her five children through college. Wow. And Nikita, I'm tearing up because I've never told this story to anyone. I've never told this story to anyone. So, you know, thank you because um, it speaks to your storytelling ability to draw that out of me. And it meant everything to me because it was the moment where I realized that so many sacrifices had been made for me and that had been the ultimate sacrifice and therefore failure was not, not an option and failure never was one and it never was one from the moment i got to college wow. i had my mother's sacrifices pushing me on that is an amazing woman and so i see you got that gene so you got it from her <laughs> cuz she really really made as you said the ultimate sacrifice she what did. you won't do for your children what you won't do for your children wow yeah and so having had that having lived that and having written the book mm-hmm. with those experiences yeah. do you feel as though you have made that sacrifice part of what your mother envisioned mm-hmm. like do you believe that this is what she saw and what she wanted and what she now is kind of absolutely absolutely the harvest. she's reaping the harvest say that say that so church up in Yes, Nikita. Amen. She is. And I know that because one of her dreams was to see that book published. Um, she wanted to share her testimony with the world because indeed that memoir, it's a testimony to survival, to survival and to trust and belief in God. Amen. You and know, love. And, and love. love it's love. everything. It's everything. And she wanted to share that testimony with the world to inspire others and to let others know of the power of God. Yeah. And so 
when I was young, she said, when I said, oh my God, when I'd sit at her feet and listen to these stories, and I'd say, one day I'm going to write that book, Mom. And she said, I believe you will, darling. <laughs> and so when I started writing the book, and I would delay, or before I started writing the book, she would say, Mom, when are you going to get to that book? When are you going to get to that book? You know, and so it was many, many years before I did get to it. Yeah. And she was getting up in years. Yeah. And so I published the book when my mom turned 90. Wow. And to be wow. able to hand her that oh printed book in her hand with her picture on, on the, the cover <laughs> and say, Mom, oh my God. we did it. We published your testimony. Others will know yeah. the power of God. Will know and will learn and will live and will learn and live in that story. And and learn so yeah, yeah, and she, oh my God, yeah. my mom was a looker. Like, oh, okay. she was a looker. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. She's like, oh, oh my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. I loved it. So yeah. So she was for her. That was one of her greatest um, moments when she saw That's her, her story told. Beautiful story. So I do believe that she knows and believes yeah. that she is reaping the harvest. So what do you say for folks, because everybody believes, everybody does have a story. Not mm-hmm. everybody has the time to write it or the discipline to do mm-hmm. it. What is it that allows you to make that kind of time and how you go through the process of an idea right. to the book? Well, you know, it's not everybody wants to write a book. You know, and I always tell my mentees every journalist has a book in them. Yes. Every, there's not yes. one of us who are in this business who doesn't right. have a story that's burning deep yes. down that one day they want to tell. <laughs> right. You know, but the issue is finding the time yes. to do it. I will confess that it took me 17 years to write that book. And so I think that's that's quite an abnormality and quite an aberration. No one does that. And I wouldn't recommend it. It's quite an abnormality. I would not recommend it to anyone. But that's what it took for me because I was raising two children and I had a family and so and then I left my job and then I started a a new job and then I left that job and I was running my business and then I left so life changes um but the key is I got it done and 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 the key is to focus on the end you know focus on the uh, the end result and not on the fact that oh it took me too long I gotta just focus on I got it done right you know and so was it much later than I hoped? Yes. yes. But was it in God's time? Amen. Amen. Ooh, you okay. said the Amen. 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 That's why I know we, we are kindred spirits. We are kindred spirits. So, so when is the movie starting? And I just need a small role. Maybe a cameo. Is there a movie? Oh, What's going to be the next mm. sequel to this? Or will there be one? I have been on page one of my second book yeah. for two years. Okay. <laughs> Because that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. You know, my next book is, I told my mom's story, and I want to tell mine. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because from that moment, you know, when I went off to college and um, determined to succeed, how did our girl say, life for me ain't been no crystal stair? No, it has no Okay. It was no crystal staircase. It was a struggle. It was a fight. It was two steps back. Three steps forward at times, yeah. but I made it. Yes. 
And I think that those struggles that I have overcome personally yeah. um, are my own testimony. Because yeah. I believe in testimony. Man, you've got and to have a testimony. You've got to have a testimony. Right? Oh, my hey, goodness. Don't, don't get me started. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry. So that's what I'm hoping okay. to get to when I can get to it. Yes. So in the midst of writing the second book, yes. and in the midst of being the president of the National Association of Black Journalists Chicago chapter, and in the midst of being the president for the Chicago Journalists Association, how do those two experiences, those two leadership roles, help to propel? Because I know how it has helped me personally. Yes, yes. But how are you able to help journalism mm-hmm. and journalists through those roles? Well, you know, it's a calling that I didn't realize that I had until God pushed me into, you know, where He wanted me. Yes. And that calling has become a commitment and devotion to the field of journalism. Mm. And to excellence in journalism. Mm. And excellence in journalism, in my belief, can only be achieved through diversity in journalism. Yes. That's it. And, and through the pursuit of all sides of the story Amen. and bringing all voices to the table. And so, you know, God had me join NABJ's board yes. as, you know, someone who was interested in scholarships because I've always been deeply committed to helping the, those coming behind me. And so I was scholarship chair for many years, and then from there I became a vice president and um, advocating for print journalism because broadcasters get all the glow. <laughs> <laughs> but you are ready to like just kept pushing me and next thing I know he's like I want you to run the organization I want you to continue to push for diversity and to take a stand and it's not an easy thing to do because you know you put yourself out there those who are against diversity Mm. will find a reason to be against you it truly is a commitment both um, uh, mentally and spiritually and physically um, because it's work and so you know along that line I thought that was all that God wanted me to do but next thing you know you know he's pushing me to join the Chicago Journalists Association and when I was asked to do that I thought okay well I talk a good game I preach (laughs) diversity so now that they're wanting to diversify their board. I was the first African American on that board in, in decades. Oh my goodness. And so I thought, well, wow. since they're wanting to diversify and diversity is what I've been talking, yes. I gotta walk the walk. And so I joined, and next thing you know, the president decides to retire. And and next thing you know, I'm running that organization. Yes, I'm following a calling that I did not see for myself, but God apparently had other plans. And it's important because I just think that we as black journalists, number one, Mm -hmm. need a voice. We need that voice that keeps saying to American newsrooms, Mm. you have to diversify. You have to have all voices at the table. And then I feel that we as journalists in this industry, and the Chicago Journalists Association represents all journalists in Chicago. So I feel that we as journalists in this industry have to give back and have to keep an eye on 
the next generation of yes, journalists, be it black, yes, white, green, or purple. Yes, yes, And no matter what stage you're in, you can be a mentor exactly. or guide to somebody. That's if you're in grad idea. school, if you're already, you know, in a career, you can help somebody. Nikita, you said that exactly. You said it exactly. You do, you do. That's, that's, what it, that's what it's all about. And you are really good at, at telling stories and helping others to do the same. Is there a story you haven't written that mm. you want to write? Someone you have it covered mm-hmm. that you'd like to feature. Well, you know, I think if it's if it's Elba, you call me. Yeah. I don't like you. I'm not Elba. Oh my God, yes. So you um, need some help with the pen. Oh, absolutely. You carry the pen. Carry Oh man. So yeah, there. You know, I've interviewed a lot of um, so many. Yeah, famous uh, African American achievers because my passion has been inspiring others. Mm-hmm. And so when I interview these people, it's not for because you're a celebrity. It's sure. about tell, give me that nugget that will inspire someone somebody else, else. and most importantly, inspire the youth. Yes. And so it, it's where you and I, our paths, our paths converge on that yes. particular mission. Yes, yes. So, um. Give us some of the names anyway. So uh, that, you know, give us some names. No, you know, my gosh. Um. Uh, it's, it's just crazy to, um, to think now, you know, I've, um, I have, oh gosh, you know, so, it's so funny. Yeah, yeah you, you suddenly draw, like, you have to bring okay. in your publicist. So, yeah, right, right. So when I look back, um, at my photos, you know, one of the, I, one of the furthest back I look at is, um, Muhammad Ali. Love. Interviewing Muhammad yes. Ali. That was a moment. Yes. And, um, Mr. T. You know, yeah, talking about a name from the past, yes. you know, so there's him and, and him. And then, um, there is Danny Glover, um, right? Hill yes. Harper. Yes. Um, there is who else? There's so many. There's so many. Oh, there's, uh, Taraji Henson. Love Taraji. Love Taraji, right? Yes. Right? Yes. And, um, just the list goes on. There's, there's a lot of people who have really impacted me with their stories. Yeah. Um, oh. What's her name that's on a uh, green... Green Leaf. Green Leaf. Uh, Lynn Whitfield. Lynn Whitfield. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Love her. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been surprised at an interview that a person is either like really, really different from what mm-hmm. you had expected? Yeah, I think that happens a lot. Yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah. Let me think of someone who did that for me recently. Yeah. Um, Will Packer. Yeah, I saw that. Will Packer. Yeah. Will Packer was so humble. Yeah. So humble. So down to earth. Yeah. He was like the brother next door. <laughs> and he's just achieved. Yeah. Nearly 30 films. That's amazing. You know, and one of a handful that I would call the rat pack of, of African American, you know, black male directors yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. So occasionally you, you interview someone and you're just like, oh my God, this, these yeah. people are amazing. Yeah. And then they just come Right wow. there on level. Wow. And they've never forgotten who they are, and they're still real. And those are the folks who will be there in their 15 years. There you go. Versus yes. those who are here. Yes. So yes. Yes. You know, he's here to stay. Exactly. Exactly. But you asked, who would I like to interview? Who would you like to interview? That Oprah is at the top of my list. Did you hear that, Oprah? Oprah, Oprah call me. Right. All right. All right. <laughs> She's probably on the phone right now. Right, exactly. She's at the top of my list. Speaking of folks who rank highly, you just got ranked by 
Top 25 women in journalism. That's right. That's right. That's right. Another award. I would call that a career highlight. Yeah. I mean, to wake up one day and and the internet is a buzz that you are among the 25 most powerful women in Chicago journalism. You pinch yourself. You pinch yourself. You're like, who whose wife is this? I'm like, I know her. How did this happen? You know, and of course you don't you don't believe it. You figure it's a mistake, right? Um, but I'll take it. Yes. You'll take it into this Yes. Anyway, that was a it was a wonderful, wonderful award. I was so happy to see it. I was very, very thrilled, very humble. Yes. So what is next for you? What is next, and then where can we continue to follow what's next? Thank you. Well, what's next is that um, I hope to continue to bring uh, my readers those uh, inspiring stories through Chicago Chronicles and continue doing stories that move people to act and um, to bring about change for the better Mm -hmm. for my community. Mm -hmm. So... um, There's a lot of stories I'm currently working on, but one of my focuses, one of my prime area of focus, I should say, for this particular next several months is I want to focus on the rebuilding of the west side and the south side. So um, it's risen to the forefront. Our first African-American female mayor came in with that as one of her campaign promises. And we have seen the communities that I cover, those stories that I write about are in those communities. We've seen them completely decimated by poverty and disinvestment Mm. and gang violence. Mm. And so since that was a campaign promise of the mayor, my passion has become making sure that happens. Mm. And the way I do that is through highlighting all efforts to rebuild those communities. And so that will be a recurring theme. Absolutely. You did did a story about entrepreneurs of color and these banks that are coming together to help. Yes, that's Chase and Absolutely. launched it, and some more banks are on board, right? Thank you. Yes, yes, Nikita. Talk about that. Those are the kind of stories that I am focused on now. I want to do those stories to inspire others to chip in and try to change those communities. Sometimes people think about Chicago, look at Chicago, they think it's all one thing. Exactly. We're not monolithic. No, we're not all not at all. No, we are not. We are not trying to do better. Exactly. And you are writing about it. And that's my that's my that's my passion. I want to keep a spotlight for the next several months on rebuilding the West Side and South Side communities that are most struggling and where my stories have been found. For the past three years. Man. Well, you heard it here. And tell us oh, where, where they can follow Yeah, it. where they can find Because you're always on Twitter. She was with Soledad <laughs> at some event. You, every time I look up, she's like with somebody from somewhere. And I'm like, do you have a handbook? Oh, my God. Do you have God. a driver? Like, how do you Girl, I, I, I tell you, you, I need one. Some days, as I was told <laughs> before we got started, I don't know how I put one foot in front of the other. I get so tired. But um, uh, it's a blessing. It's Amen. a blessing. And so, please, I would tell your listeners to yes. follow. Follow me on Twitter at Maudlin I, and that's my first name, M-A-U-D-L-Y-N-E-I, and it's the same handle I have on Instagram and the same handle I have on Facebook. 
Wonderful. And follow Pivotal Moment on those same channels. Yes. Facebook, Twitter. Yes. Um, and LinkedIn. And yes. then also, this is our first video show, which I yes. yes. So also, and you can find the podcast on iHeartRadio, um, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. So I right. follow her religiously, people. <laughs> you got to follow her. These stories are so amazing. So, so inspiring. I just sit there and listen. I'm like, wow. You know, oh, so important. We, we thank you because we need stories. And that's why I started the podcast, because I wanted people to know, especially people who look like us, that yes. you can be at the Chicago Sun-Times, yes. Times, and you can be an author, yes. you can write about your mother's life and love and black love and mm. black empowerment, yes. and you can do that and still be real. Oh, so these are the yes. stories that I want to tell, you know, as, a, as journalists, sometimes we... We tell the stories that our editors told oh, us. Yes. Right. Absolutely. But then often we can tell our own. Yeah. And so I get to tell my own. Yes. And I get to tell it with this wonderful queen right here. So thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next time on Give It a Moment. I'm your host, Nikita Boston. Thank you. Okay, you have got to love Maudlin. She is the real deal. Love her story, love her work with the Chicago Sun-Times, and love her book, Escape from Nigeria, a memoir of faith, love, and war. She is changing our world one story at a time. So please be sure to follow her on all of her social media platforms to see where and when she will be speaking, teaching, and leading us to our best lives. Shout out to Maudlin. And next week... Next week, listen to our episode with another superstar sister, Felicia Mary. She's the creator and co-executive producer of Bigger, the new hit series on BET+. The show is the new buzz in Hollywood, and it follows the lives of five friends in Atlanta in their search for Bigger in all ways. You don't want to miss the show. You do not want to miss Bigger. So please be sure to listen to Pivotal Moment on iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, and Podbean. I'm your host, Nikita Faustin. We will talk to you next time.